This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. I don't know about you, but if somebody can bring science into a conversation, I will listen every single time. And so as much as James and I sat here yesterday saying, just keep it at daylight saving time, I think both of us were talking more about the time change itself. But I like the bright lights of the summer. I like when things are nice and light out in this area until sometimes close to 10 o'clock, maybe after 10. Have you ever lived somewhere kind of higher north? Wow. I mean... 11 o'clock and you're still playing catch in the backyard? That's not out of the question around July. However, maybe daylight saving time, if we're going to stick in one type of time, is not the right one. Maybe standard time is the way to go. And science definitely leans one particular way. Joining us right now is a professor in the Department of Biology at York University. Please welcome Dr. Patricia Lakin-Thomas to London Live. Dr. Lakin-Thomas, thanks for being here. Hi, Mike. Happy to be with you. Let's look at what the science seems to like, and then we'll look at why the science likes it that way. So if we were to choose between staying in daylight standard time, or I guess just standard time, or, stay, or staying in, in daylight saving time, which way does science lean? Well, the evidence from biologists who study biological timing, and we call ourselves chronobiologists, and I'm uh, speaking on behalf of the Canadian Society for Chronobiology, we definitely want to see uh, a switch to year-round standard time. Now, that's the time that most of the rest of the world is on, and that we are on in the winter, and we want to definitely stop the twice-yearly time change. I think everybody's pretty well unanimous on that. That's a bad idea. So the choice between year-round daylight saving time, which is the schedule we have in the summer, or year-round standard time, we really want to see standard time. We're very excitable, emotional creatures, we humans. Uh, You know that probably better than anyone. Uh, when we go into a weekend in which there's a time change that allows us to fall back, we always think, woohoo, extra hour of sleep. And then we kind of feel cruddy for a few days, and we don't seem to remember that aspect of it. So let's begin to look at the, the why standard time. What is it about standard time that is helpful from a scientific perspective? Well, what we have to think about is our biological clocks. So humans and practically every other organism have biological clocks that tell 24-hour time and that organize everything that goes on in the body, all your physiology. You have a clock in your brain that's your master clock, and it is set by light. Then it sends information around your body to your organs, and you have clocks in your liver and your lungs and your guts and your heart and everywhere. And those follow signals sent from your brain, but they're a little bit slow to catch up. So when you fly across time zones, you know what that feels like. It's basically your brain sets to your local time pretty fast because of the light, but then your guts and your liver and everything are playing catch up for a few days. And that's when you get that jet lag feeling. And that's going to happen when we do the time change, one hour in the fall, one hour in the spring. It's worse in the spring because we lose an hour of sleep, so we're a bit sleep deprived as well. Um, But if we go on year-round daylight saving time, the problem is we're going to be out of step with the sun. 
and we really strongly reset to sunrise. Humans need to see the sunrise to get our clocks reset because we actually run a little bit slow. Our clock loses about 10 to 30 minutes a day, and we have to reset it every day, just like a watch that runs slow, and it's the sunrise that's important. So you get a little light in the morning from the sunrise, it's going to reset your clock by making it go a little faster, a little earlier, and you're, and you're good. When we get that extra light in the evening, it pushes us later, and people wake up, uh, people go to sleep later when they have that daylight. It's great in the summer, right? You're out getting that daylight in the early evening, but it's making your clock run late. It's making you go to bed late. Now we have our social clock, which means the clock on the wall that says you still have to get up and go to work in the morning. You still have to get up and go to school, right? And you've lost sleep. So when we're on daylight saving time, we are not synchronized with the sun and we're going to be pushed to uh, stay up later every day and we're going to lose sleep. So on standard time, we are better synchronized with the sun, and that's the time that our body is going to be best synchronized with the uh, social clock, which is what society says we have to do. Dr. Patricia Lake and Thomas joining us, professor in the Department of Biology at York University and a chronobiologist as we talk about our bodies and how they work through time changes from a scientific standpoint. Isn't it, don't you sit back sometimes, Dr. Lake and Thomas, and wonder why we don't revere the sun a little bit more than we do i mean the connection we have to it whether it was creating power which somehow we we never really harnessed to any great degree or paying attention to it so we can be at our healthiest we just we don't don't think enough about it do we well that's that's a great point and many cultures across the world across time have worshipped the sun of course uh for good reason it seems surprising to us that we live in electric light. You know, some of us hardly ever see anything except electric light. And you think, well, it doesn't matter what the sun's doing. But what has surprised me is evidence that's come out in the last few years that we really do follow the sun. And you can see, for example, across a time zone, you know, we've divided the Earth up into these arbitrary one-hour time zones. But you can see the sun, of course, goes continually across the sky, rises in the east, goes to the west. People on the west side of a time zone are getting up, uh, are rather going to bed later than people on the east side of a time zone. They really are setting themselves to the sun. Even though everybody in that time zone is on the same social time, they're setting their alarm clocks the same, they're turning the electric lights on and off. But uh, we just can't ignore our biology. It'll catch up with us. Now, there are parts of our Earth where you're just out of luck. If you live north enough, you are going to experience in the winter a whole lot more darkness than the rest of us do. Is that something that a body will kind of evolve to accept? Or do those bodies just kind of fight against that all the time? Yeah, we we haven't spent enough time as a species in all of these different climactic uh, areas to actually evolve much defense against it. Um, and as far as these time changes go, of course, it's all kind of meaningless when you get far enough north because they're coping with, uh, you know, um, midnight sun in the summer and continuous dark in the winter. That's a whole different, uh, much more severe situation to have to deal with. And um, 
people can adapt to a, to a certain extent, but it is going to be hard on people. And I know um, some people get quite depressed if they move to the north and they have daylight, uh, they have darkness all all winter long. It's it can be hard to cope with. Um, so there's no perfect solution for everybody as far as time changes go. At the equator, it doesn't matter much either because there's not much difference in day length um, from winter to summer, and certainly doesn't matter in the high latitudes at the Arctic. We're really talking about people in the temperate zone um, who have uh, big differences in, or who who um, have differences in the. Um, different seasons as far as the length of the day goes. And we're the ones who are most impacted by these time changes. Right. Dr. Patricia Lake and Thomas joining us, professor in the Department of Biology at York University. So would you be in favor of just a consistent time as well? Are we, are we just doing ourselves a disservice flipping back and forth? Because you mentioned it off the start, Dr. Lake and Thomas, not everybody does this in the world, just a few spots. Well, that's right. It's really a thing for Europe and North America. The rest of the world, most of the rest of the world doesn't do this. Um, And we only got started at the beginning of the 19th century with people who wanted a little more light in the afternoon. And then they tried it during World War One, World War Two, again in the 70s, thinking it was going to save energy. But it never did. The data show that the energy savings weren't ever realized the way they thought it would. So there's not much point in it. And we know that particularly in April when we spring forward and we lose an hour of sleep and we're feeling jet lagged on top of it, that we can see acute health effects like increases in uh, heart attacks and strokes, increases in um, accidents. So it's not good for us. We should stop the time change back and forth. And if we're going to do that, let's go to year-round standard time. All right. Well, one final thing, and that is as we head into a weekend where we really have no choice, we've got to turn the clocks back as we go to bed on Saturday night. If you mentioned earlier that our liver takes a little extra time to catch up, our guts take a little extra time to catch up, we're all so highly sensitized toward, hey, how am I feeling? Oh, am I, what, uh, is that a tickle I have in my throat? What could that be? That's just kind of where we are right now in this pandemic. If we feel something that is, is kind of out of whack on Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or into next week, could it just be our bodies readjusting to the time change? Well, everybody is impacted by jet lag a little differently. So if you've ever flown across time zones, you'll know how you personally uh, are impacted by jet lag. And just be aware, you're going to have an hour or so of jet lag for a couple of days uh, after the time change. So just be aware of that. <laughs> well, Dr. Lagan Thomas, this has been amazing. You you have us sold. At least you have me sold. I love when the science is presented. You've presented it beautifully. Thanks so much for the time. Happy to be here. That is Dr. Patricia Lakin Thomas, professor in the Department of Biology and a chronobiologist. So looking at the way the body works, and it's I still, you know, this is one of those things that I think you have to sit up on a mount and marvel at. But the idea that we don't pay enough attention to the power of the sun and the fact that we are little beings of light as well, that light is good. Vitamin D is something that we need. And yet, well, you know, the the deep, dark basement feels good sometimes. No, we got to get light. And it does help that biological clock. So if we are going to stay somewhere 
James, I think you and I are, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm going to switch over to the standard time. I'm in. I will go standard time. If that's helping me to get the most out of my day, call me ready. Thank you to Dr. Lake Thomas for that. Let's turn back to our own politics for a moment because bus rapid transit is back. Joining us, Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire. Councillor Squire, is it good to hear is it good to hear those letters again? B R T For me, it was such a contentious issue. Um, when I hear it, I get a little bit of sort of uh, nerves going when I hear the, those letters. But, no, it's it's back on the table. It's back uh, moving ahead, I guess, in terms of – I don't guess. I know in terms of uh, the downtown loop and then the other two routes that are planned. So how much, when you say moving ahead, how much is actually moving ahead? We've seen plans. Does that mean people are running toward the downtown with shovels and things that will break up concrete no, yet? No, no. We're, these are the preliminary uh, concepts, and then it'll be down the road that the actual construction will take place. Hopefully, hopefully by then, there'll be some kind of bounce back in uh, ridership in London, or there's going to be huge issues in terms of paying the operating costs of, of BRT because right now uh, our transit is running at about 50% of normal capacity. Um, if that doesn't bounce back, you're going to have huge issues funding the operating costs of any transit system, uh, let alone BRT. So, um, you know, BRT was designed and created during a time period when there was no COVID, there weren't, there weren't really those issues. Now that we've, we're in COVID and we're going to go through COVID, it really, the whole project, from my point of view, rests on what our ridership looks like in the future. Let's talk about that ridership, because that is a main thing. If you don't have riders who will be making use of a service and you still have to pay for the service, well, it's easy to do math that will not add up. In terms of what we're seeing with ridership, do we know where that sits, maybe how much it may have fallen off? Well, if you're if you're we're now running at at fifty percent of our normal capacity at this time of year, and uh, so that's half, and and that's a big number. If you're only running half as many people going on a bus, and we're giving ninety percent service, so that's a forty percent gap. And I know from being on the LTC, we're facing a deficit um, in two thousand and twenty one. We covered our deficit in 2020 with the money we got from the federal and provincial government. But going forward, if we spend money on better uh, uh, transit system, meaning more transit in terms of our conventional transit and BRT, you could see an operating shortfall uh, that's going to be rather large. And I, I think we're going to have to talk about that at some point. I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's something that we just can't ignore going into the future. Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire joining us as we talk transit. What do you think? Does that call for a, hey, let's let's hang on here on BRT, or if you want to put the plans on the table, fine, but let's let's just hang on for a second? Is anybody making that move? No. I mean, I think what's happening is I, I think if you're going ahead with conceptual plans and you're talking about it and you're, you're, you're talking about what it would look like, no, that's not going to cost us money in terms of operating costs. The real challenge is going to come uh, in the next year to a year and a half when the LTC starts ramping up because part of doing a BRT system is your conventional system has to be better also because it has to match up with the frequency on, on BRT. So at the meeting last night, we 
We heard that there's plans to up this frequency, do a better job on, on the conventional routes, but we're not quite sure yet where we're going to get the money to do that. There's a big hole uh, in the LCC budget right now, um, and that's for our future operating costs of transit. And I, I think people need to be aware of that. Whether you like BRT or don't like BRT, you have to know that. So if we go into a future where we still have reduced ridership and we have huge increase in operating costs, I don't, you don't have to be an accountant. You could be a politician even like me and figure that is not going to match up. Now, I'm not trying to say uh, ridership won't bounce back further, but the real unknown is where is it going to go to? Because we rely to a great extent on student ridership. Where is that going to go? You know, are, are universities in the future uh, going to have as many students on campus? Um, you know, these are all things that we're going to have to look at as we move forward. So all I'm asking at this point in time is let's let's think about it. Let's not just ignore it. Let's think about it and talk about it uh, before we get into operating whatever system we end up with. Phil Squire, Ward 6 Councillor and Chair of the London Transit Commission. As we look at transit, we look at rapid transit, which is back out there, and here's what's going to happen. Shovel's not nearing the ground stage just yet, but at the same time, this is something that is now moving forward. Councillor Squire, do we know how closely ridership and service need to match each other? Is is there a magic number in that way? If you say ridership is at 50% and services is at about 90%, do those numbers need to hit certain levels? Well, yeah, because, I mean, everything in the in the uh, business case for, for uh, rapid transit, uh, BRT, predicted or said that not only were we going to get back to the ridership levels that we had uh, or uh, had at that time, but we had to increase those ridership levels. So you're looking at, you know, uh, increases in ridership of, you know, in, in that were that were fairly large. So think about this. If you're not even if you're if you're 40, you know, 50 percent off the current level and you wanted to increase that level, say, another 20 percent. Think about where we are right now relative to what we expected uh, to be at. And that's the challenge. The, the, the success of rapid DRT rests really to a great extent on ridership, because um, if you don't have the ridership, then the money is going to have to come out of uh, the, the funds that the city has. So it's going to come out of taxpayers' pockets, and it's going to come from somewhere else to pay for that uh, transit subsidy. Because every single transit ride, whether it's full price or not, is subsidized by the municipality. Um, so it has to get a lot higher before uh, BRT is going to work. And the whole BRT project is based on people leaving other modes of transportation, be it cars or something else, and getting into bus transportation. That's the entire premise of making it work. Because obviously there's no use building a system if people don't use it. So if you're asking me what do we have to get back to, that 50% has to get back to 100% of normal plus that. Uh, to make this viable. Interesting. And that's that sounds like a challenge, let's face it. I mean, BRT was born out of the idea that the province said and the Fed said, here's some money. Who wants it? Who, who's doing projects? And we were able to get our hands in the air and, and get some of that money. But in terms of how much it's going to cost to operate, BRT is more expensive than regular transit, correct? Oh, yes, to operate because because of frequency, right? You've got more frequent transit. So you're going to have more frequency of buses on our conventional routes. Those are routes that aren't the bus rapid transit routes. 
and also on the BRT. So you need more buses, more more drivers, more of everything to operate it. The other thing that's really important to remember is you, you have the province of Ontario is not one of those provinces that pays a huge amount of our operating costs. We maybe get from the province nine or ten million dollars a year. But if you look at a city like Winnipeg in Manitoba that does a bus rapid transit system, they get about forty two million dollars a year from the province. So they get thirty two million dollars more than we do to cover operating costs. Um, that doesn't happen in Ontario. So Ontario is different than other provinces. So when people say to me, oh, they're, they're running a BRT system and making money in Winnipeg or, or another church or doing uh, rail in, in Calgary, you really have to compare, you know, how much does the province give us for operating costs? And we know with bus rapid transit, every time I talk to uh, provincial officials or federal, they always said, yeah, we like giving you money for the infrastructure you know, to build it, but we don't cover operating costs. You're on your own when it comes to operating costs. So I think we have to have a little bit of care in terms of uh, what we do on operating any transit system, because right now our current transit system is losing money. So um, we got to keep our eye on this. Phil, really appreciate the time today. Not a problem. Keep Good safe. Be with you. Yep, Take care. You. That is Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire, Chair of the London Transit Commission. So there's some bare-bones numbers. Ridership, Councillor Squire says it's at 50%, needs to go up to 100% and then some, or we're going to be looking around and saying, how are we going to pay for bus rapid transit? How are we going to pay for what the actual cost is if ridership is not paying for it? That's a question you don't want to have to answer as a municipality, is it? If you were looking for a place to eat in London tomorrow, Score Pizza is a great place to go. And we like to check in with local businesses to find out how things are going and what challenges they have been facing. And we're lucky enough to have with us right now somebody who knows only too well what this pandemic has brought from a small business standpoint. And that is Hassan Nakvi, who is the owner of Score Pizza. Hassan, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Hassan, let's kind of look back at when this began. And we saw a shutdown of non-essential businesses. Can you take us back through what that time was like? So it, it's, it was really difficult, especially for me, because, uh, you know, we opened just before December. And, you know, uh, we had basically figured that we're going to gain momentum uh, till the summer. And then the summer was where we'd get all our exposure, uh, being right opposite Victoria Park. And then that's how we should, you know, that's how we would uh, become a viable business. So as the weather was getting warmer in March, you know, I started to see my percentage of new customers starting to jump up. Uh, If you had talked to me on the 10th of March, I was really happy. I knew we were headed in the right direction. Uh, And then we got shut down on the 17th. And, you know, I'm by nature, I'm an optimist. So I was hoping, you know, things would work out. We'd still be back and, you know, catch the summer festivals and stuff like that. But unfortunately, none of it happened. So now we, you know, all the momentum that we had built up the first time round, we lost that being shut for three months, almost three months. Um, then we opened uh, June 13th, the first day we were allowed to open back up again with patios. Um, and then we started building momentum again. Um uh, and, uh, you know, again, things were looking good towards the end of the summer. 
But what happened at Richmond Row is uh, as the students got back and some of them started getting sick, uh, the area completely died down. And now we're getting absolutely no business at all. And, you know, it's like starting from zero again for the third time. Boy, oh boy. We're talking with Hassan Nakfi, who is the owner of Score Pizza, such a great location, right across from Victoria Park, like you mentioned, on Richmond Row, which typically is just this great place in London. If you're moving to London, one of the first places people say to go is, well, go walk up and down Richmond. I mean, take take a feel. The, the pulse of the city can be there. And you say that you're not really seeing much traffic on Richmond Row at all, period? No, no. I, You know, uh, we had built up a strong base of local people who'd come down to score pizza, not students. Uh, and I think they're, they're, they're a little worried, too, now, to come down to Richmond Row. Uh, if you drive by Worley Village and stuff like that, you see, you know, patios are busy, restaurants are still a little busy. But this area has, has had a lot of trouble. And, you know, uh, all my colleagues that, you know, own businesses, uh, along the strip or along Richmond Road, they'll agree that there is, you know, there is still a bit of a phobia for, for people coming here. And it's understandable, right? Uh, I want everybody to be safe, too. I don't, you know, God forbid someone gets sick in my restaurant, I, you know, I'd never be able to forgive myself. But I think I think there's a bit of a hype out there now. Uh, I think that people should look, you know, if a restaurant is taking all the precautions, tables are socially distanced properly, um, people are wearing masks. I think it's a relatively safe place to be. Yeah, and that's that's just it. I mean, we're looking at, at so many restaurants who are doing it right, where the protocols are there. In following the protocols, what has that meant for you? Do you find they change, or has it been pretty consistent once you were set up, things were okay? I think I think things were okay. I, you know, I gotta I gotta uh, really applaud uh, the London Middlesex Health Unit. Uh, they've been advisors, not enforcers at all. Um, you know, and if you follow their advice, I think you have a safe establishment. Um, they, you know, they they have come and checked a few times, uh, pointed out a few things that we might be doing wrong. But for the most part, they've been uh, so helpful. Even, you know, a few questions that I had, I called them up, got my got the responses I needed. So, you know, I, hats off to them. I think uh, they're doing a great job. And more than, more than that, I think the responsible businessmen uh, or the business people are doing a good job too. Uh, you know, we're not going to be a viable business if we don't take care of our customers. Um, and the bottom line is, I need to take care of my customers for them to want to come here. They want, they need to feel safe in my establishment. So we we follow all the protocols, and I don't, I you know, quite honestly, uh, the the biggest problem was you know cutting down capacity for the seating, and that's really not a problem anymore because we don't have the customers. We're not filling up regardless. So you know, there's there's, there's no there's no concern following the protocols as far as I'm concerned. We're talking with Hassan Nakvi, owner of Score Pizza on Richmond Street in London, right across from Victoria Park, part of Richmond Row, and that's just one of those one of those spots in London that is always busy, but as Hassan says, not as busy right now. The online, the, the delivery, that sort of thing, a lot of businesses have said, well, we have seen that grow, but even that maybe is not enough as, as or not as much as, as what we need out of our total business. What are you finding from online orders? So, so Mike, look, 
even the the best businessman who runs the tightest ship as far as a food and beverage establishment is concerned, uh, where it's a restaurant, not a bar, will tell you that his margins are, you know, I mean, I'm talking, I'm not saying these are my margins, but I'm saying the best person would probably tell you about 18, 19%, right? Mm-hmm. The food delivery service, service takes 30% off the top. Now, you know, I'm not I'm not going to put them down because it helps to have that revenue come in because you get the cash flow. But at the end of the day, you're not making money off of that. You know, you might be covering a percentage of your labor. You might be covering a percentage of your food costs, but you're not making money off of that. And I think a lot of the, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to speak for anybody else, but you know, I have to thank all my suppliers, my landlord, you know, uh, all these people who've been so understanding, you know, and I'm talking about from small local companies like say John's Fruit or to the big national companies like Sintas or, you know, Fari Group, who's our landlord. Uh, they've all been so understanding and you know, it's all, when you call them and you tell them, you know, you're having a bit of a cash flow problem, they always, everybody has turned around and said, listen, don't worry about it. We got your back. Uh, so, you know, a lot of credit needs to be given to these people that, you know, a lot of these businesses are still around right now. Because it's been it's been a tough, tough, tough year for, for me. I mean, you know, I'm almost coming on to a year of having been open here. It's been very difficult. No doubt. We're talking with Hassan Nakvi from Score Pizza on Richmond Row and just kind of taking the temperature of what this has been like. So amazing to know that that kind of coming together exists. Overall, it, do you think, Hassan, it's it's more of a confidence thing of, okay, you know, we can dine in and we can take all the precautions and, and we can, you know, know that the protocols are, are being followed? Is there anything that we could wave a magic wand at and, and make things improve? So I, I think it is a confidence thing. Let me let me tell you something, Mike. I'm, I'm, I've been in Canada only about five years. Um, uh, you know, I immigrated here in 2015 and... Let me tell you something. The the spirit in Canada about supporting local is more than I've seen anywhere in the world. I've lived in the U.S. for 10 years. I lived in Dubai for four or five years. Uh, I'm originally from Pakistan. And, you know, supporting the local community, and it's, it's evident by the, by the fact that, you know, uh, if you look at our levels of government, we've got so many different parties that are usually just yelling at each other, and they're doing a bit of it right now, too. But <clears throat> when, it come, when it came down to, you know, shutting everything down, the way they got together to support the nation was, you know, honestly, uh, humbling for, for me at least to see that. People putting their egos aside and deciding to work together regardless. And so, you know, that spirit is there. I think people are just a little worried right now, and understandably so. Especially, you know, especially if you're, uh, uh, you know, part of a vulnerable population, if you have some prior health issues and stuff like that, a pizza isn't worth dying over, right? Um, so I, I understand that. I really do. Uh, but I just think we need to we need to tell people that, you know, if you walk into a place and it doesn't look right, you know, walk out. When in doubt, walk out. Hmm. Um, but if you see that, you know, precautions are being taken, and all the health professionals are telling us that, uh, you know, that these precautions keep you safe, then I think it's okay <clears throat> to come out. 
Well, Hassan, you have painted an incredible picture of what it is like to be the owner and operator of a small business, of a restaurant right now, and we really appreciate the insight because that's the only way that we can all learn how things are going. So good luck with everything. I really hope the traffic on Richmond Row picks up, and uh, and I really hope things continue you know on an upward trend as opposed to a, a straight across or or any other kind of trend keep safe and thanks for the time today thank you so much mike really appreciate you having me on that is hassan nakvi from score pizza on richmond row so traffic on richmond row is down and restaurateurs are all trying to figure out small businesses period are all trying to figure out how to do things online, do things remotely in the restaurant business. And Hassan said it, you know, you can't fault people for having a delivery service charge, but at the same time, it's something you have to factor into your own bottom line. And there's a real dance that goes on there right now in terms of of how that works. You need to be on these certain delivery services, these apps, but there is a cost to doing that business. And it's a different world. It's a different landscape. The restaurant business has never been easy. Ask anybody who has decided, you know what we should do? We should open a restaurant and has not had any restaurateur experience. That's tough. And a lot of them don't make it because it isn't easy. And so it's great to get that insight into what it is like from someone who is dealing with it on a day-to-day basis. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 